if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 9. So everything in the order of service today was aimed at Pastor Jim talking about justification and faith, so <laughs> I'm going to talk about something completely different, so, but similar. It's all connected. Um, oh, one of the great parts of the story of the Bible is how realistic it is. Uh, the way Jesus comes to meet us where we are, wrestling with sin and suffering, and then how he sends us out, um, equipped then to go love other sinners and sufferers, and that's what John 9 is going to help us do this morning. I also want to read, before I read John 9, I'm going to read Deuteronomy 5, the second commandment. Kind of understand where the disciples' question comes from. And so let's read our texts and we'll pray and meditate on the gospel together. This is God's word. This is uh, Deuteronomy 5, 1 to 6. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, which is Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, all of us who are here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands or to a thousand generations of those who keep me. And love my commandments. And then John 9, with that ringing in your ears. Verses 1 to 12. It says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. 
So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. This is God's word. Uh, He's spoken to us today in love. His word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I ask that you would show us Jesus this morning with fresh eyes, that we may trust him, the light of the world, with all with all the dark corners of our lives. And for that, we need your help, Lord. We need your spirit to come and lighten the eyes of our hearts to see the riches of what we have in Christ Jesus. And so it's in his name we ask that you come and teach us. Now we pray, amen. All right, I mean, this is, this is a great question that, that the disciples ask in in verse 2 here, right? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You hear the question they're asking? Right? It stinks to be him. Who's to blame? Right? Who offended God that this would happen? Is it his fault? You know, or just you can expand the question, why is he suffering? Why am I suffering? Right? I mean, this is a very loaded theological question. Who sinned? that he was born blind. And what we have here in this text is, is what uh, the, the official word would be a theodicy. Right? That's the theological term. We all have a theodicy. A theodicy is the technical term to make sense of the problem of pain. Uh, we're, we're all trying to make sense of a world that goes not well and try and connect that to God who is good, so good that he sent his son to bleed on our behalf in a world in which we bleed and suffer. Right? I mean, a theodicy is the way we justify the existence of pain and a good God. All right, so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about, the problem of pain, and, and let Jesus teach us. Why, how does he help us process the painful parts of our lives uh, when we can't see God's goodness? Right? I mean, there is a lot of pain and darkness in the world if just I mean, don't do this too often, but just read the news, <laughs> right? I mean, I went to, I skimmed the BBC yesterday to just get an overview of what's wrong with the world. Well, one of the long articles, there's this mystery of how long COVID is just affecting people's memory. So there's disease. There's a history of things not going well. There was a massacre of Algerians, a, a, a protest in France like 60 plus years ago, right? And it was covered up. So there's injustice. Uh, Last week, a British parliament, uh, an MP was was murdered, and they're calling it an act of terrorism. Uh, And for something completely different, there was a Colombian drug lord who had hippos that they left alone and that are now breeding out of control and ruining the the environment, right? The world goes not well. There's hippos taking over the place. (laughs) Right, I mean, these are big moments. But most of us live our lives, right, in the, in the, the mundane, the 10,000 little moments, and I don't know what your math would be out of those 10,000 little moments, how many of them involve pain or frustration. So we all ask why, and how you answer that question is either going to bring comfort or it's going to crush you. It's either going to make you bitter or make you better. I'll make you more blind, to use Jesus' words, or you're going to have eyes to see what God is up to in, the, in those moments. 
And so what I want to do this morning is look at the problem of pain. That's the first point, and we'll see that God has a plan for it. And so let's start here. Articulate the problem of pain according to Jesus' disciples. Right? Because here's the, here's the juxtaposition, if you will. You got Jesus, who says, I am, over and over again in, in, in uh, the Gospel of John. He is God come in the flesh. You have divine, abundant goodness as a human being standing right next to someone who has been blind from birth. Lifelong blindness. And then as verse 1 says, right, Jesus passed by and saw this man who was blind from birth, and you get this glimpse of God's goodness. Jesus sees him in his suffering. He noticed him in ways the disciples didn't. They were going to walk past. Right? And so do you know how significant that is? I mean, it's a small word, right? He saw. Do you know how significant it is to be seen as a beggar? I mean, it's, it's the difference between life and death, hunger and survival. I mean, when I spent time in my 20s in Madagascar, every journey downtown was basically navigating um, just the relentless ask. Monsieur, donne-moi le monnaie, right? I need money. And they usually have cute little kids with them. And they, some of them were quite willing to walk a mile with you wherever your destination was to keep, keep asking and keep asking and... One of, the, one of the specific people I remember is when he got off the bus and walked through the market in the same place every, every week was this young girl, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, who had some kind of disease where her head was bigger than it should be. I don't know if it was lymphoma. I don't know what it was, but she never looked up. She had a, just a container there on the ground. I never remember her asking for help. Literally thousands of people every day would walk past her on their way to work, on their way to, to home. Um, being seen for her, similar to this blind man, right? It's life and death. Right? And you imagine you're there, and we're there as a church on a field trip, and there's 12 to 14 of us, and, and we stop to have a conversation right next to her. <laughs> And instead of giving a hug or, or putting some money in her, in her container, and you go, who sinned to make her like this? Is it her fault or her parents? Right? It's not helpful. <laughs> it's not kind. It's dehumanizing. Right? The disciples need a lesson on how to love people, as do we. Right? They need their theology corrected in order to love sufferers. Right? But not Jesus. Jesus saw her. Or, sorry, him. I can go back to the right text. He saw him. And it's because he saw the disciples stopped and looked, and that provoked their question. And, and the disciples start to lay out their view of suffering and how they process suffering in the world. They give us two bad ways to deal with pain. So put yourself, and this is what I'm hoping that will help, put yourself in the blind person's shoes. Right? As they say out loud what they think the reason is, you are suffering. Right? So first part, you sinned, therefore you suffer. And therefore, any physical pain in that context, right? it's my fault. Right? Did this man sin 
in order to be blind from birth? That's their question. To which we go, don't you have to be born to sin? <laughs> right? It's such a strange question. Right? Did he sin in the womb? Where, where does this question come from? You know, maybe God looked down the quarters of time and knew this guy was going to just be an unkind human being and God just cursed him with blindness ahead of time, right? What are they asking? I mean, you know, in the ancient world, some rabbis, some teachers actually believed it was possible to sin in the womb. So maybe that's one answer. Other Jews believed in the pre-existence of the soul, and so maybe they're saying there's just people who are bad eggs. He had it coming. No matter how you look at it, they're saying the reason he is blind is because it's his fault. Right? We have a modern way of doing this. We call it karma. Right? That whatever you do, every good deed or every bad deed comes back to you. Right? That God's punishing you for something you did in the past. You deserve this pain. Right? And Jesus says, no, that's not how this world works. That's not how God's world works. It's not that this man sinned. So let me put, just meditate on that, right? Bad theology, what we're all tempted to do, at least I do, wants to make a one-to-one -one correspondence between the bad stuff I've done and the bad things that are happening to me, right? I mean, there's common sense. If you steal a car, you go to jail, right? That, that's moral guilt. There's moral consequences. But we're talking about unasked-for suffering where it feels like God is out to get you. And the moment you make that move, that I sinned, therefore I suffer, you turn inward. Guilt and shame just start filling every conversation you have in your head. You know, you go say, oh, I've been a real jerk lately, or I've been lazy, or I've used those unkind words. Maybe God's just trying to humble me, to get me back, to make me more spiritual, to be a better person. And the more that swirls around in your head, in my head and in my heart, it turns into, right, if I'm good, therefore I won't suffer. Right? Which is not true because Jesus is perfect and he is the suffering servant. Or, or you can go on, right, the problem with this view, we don't take into account what David prayed in the Psalms. Who can actually see what's wrong with them? Who can discern his errors? Lord, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Right? There's things I don't even know are wrong with me. Right? I'm blind, to use the metaphor. At any given moment, I'm not aware of everything I'm doing right or wrong. I'm just being me. David has the, the awareness to say, Lord, forgive me of those faults too. So how are you going to realistically identify the root cause, the root sin, that one thing that God is using to punish you? not possible. It's like trying to diagnose yourself without a CAT scan or the wisdom to read said CAT scan because we can't see everything. See, what Jesus is doing here and all the way through the Gospel of John, he's saying, do not moralize your suffering because the Christian, if, to use Jesus' words, if you believe in the Son of God, the one whom God sent, you already right now are not condemned. Because all those who believe, who have trusted Jesus, have already been judged by God on the cross. You are forget, forever declared not guilty in Jesus. 
That's what all those words about justification were about this morning. And so you're supposed to go, okay, therefore my suffering cannot be God punishing me for that one specific thing because he already punished, condemned Jesus for that thing. Right? So that's bad theology. Which in this context, if you really believe that, it's gonna, you're going to start to look at other sufferers the same way, which prohibits you from loving them because you're going to say, what did you do wrong to do this? Right? That's not loving. Can you blame suffering on sin? Sure. We're going to talk about that in several weeks when we get to Genesis 3, that suffering's in the world because of capital S, sin. But it does not mean that suffering is always in your world because of your specific sin. Right? So to use the, the text, right? This man is blind, not because of what he's done, but because the world we live in is unnatural, according to the scriptures. This is not how the world was meant to be. He's suffering because of the fall. And I love what um, this theologian named, uh, uh, his German, Moltmann, I'm going to butcher his last name, but he, he talks about this, right? That when you see Jesus healing the sick, what is he doing? He's driving out the powers of destruction and death. He's healing and restoring these created beings who are hurt and sick. And so what he wants us to see and what the Bible wants us to see is Jesus' healings are not supernatural events in a natural world. This world is not natural. Suffering is not how it's supposed to be. No, Jesus' miracles are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural and wounded. So, the problem of pain is you can't blame yourself. That's the first part. The second thing that disciples try and do is blame the parents for his suffering. All right, is this man blind because his parents sinned? Can you blame someone else for your suffering? Is God taking out his justice on you for someone else's injustice? And I wonder, this is why we read Deuteronomy 5, if perhaps the disciples are getting their whole question from the second commandment that God visits the iniquity or the sin of the fathers down to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Of course, by way of contrast, his mercy extends to a thousand generations, so you're supposed to hear that more than, than the, the third or fourth. But the picture in the ancient world is, well, in ancient Israelite households, you'd have three or four generations living together in the same roof. You'd have great-grandpa living with two-year-old great-grandson. Right, that's four generations. It's quite, quite possible. And what, what the disciples are doing is they're hearing that verse, which is heavily weighted to show that God is a God who's merciful and slow to anger, and are saying, perhaps God is visiting the iniquity of his father, of his parents, on this guy, and that's why he's blind. Now, there's some common sense here, right? Parents' sins affect the child. A pregnant mom, substance abuse. Right? That would harm the child for the rest of their life, potentially. And even more ordinary, in our own house, right? our kids grow up seeing what we love, seeing what we worship, seeing what we value, and our kids tend to love what we love and worship what we worship and care about what we care about. So our kids are going to imitate us. 
But what Jesus is saying here is you can't blame the parents for him being born blind. Again, Jesus won't let his disciples moralize suffering. Don't get out the magnifying glass and just go on a hunt to look for someone's moral failure to pin your pain on. Whose fault is it? Jesus says, neither you nor the parents, if you're the blind man. Because we're in a fallen world. So, Jesus wants us to think about suffering differently here. If it's not my fault, if it's not my parents' fault, why is this happening? What is God's plan for pain? What is his purpose? And that's verse 3 and 4. When Jesus answered and said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must do the work, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. Right? Jesus says here to his disciples, God has a purpose. Here's that word that in verse 3. It's a Greek purpose clause. So, often translated so that or because. The man was born blind in order that or so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That other people might see Jesus in him. Right? Might see his power, might see his mercy as we've been talking about. Right? And then in verse 4, you got that word picture. It's kind of a common sense parable, right? If, if there's no electricity, you can't work at night. Right? It's saying, essentially, you have one life to be about the works of God. Jesus is talking, he uses the word we, so he's talking about himself and the disciples. So you put those two together, it seems like Jesus is saying here there's a general purpose behind this, this blind man's suffering. That God would be seen through him, through the way he's loved by Jesus. If I could put it another way, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you or what you are currently going through, Jesus is saying sufferers have the honor of being included in God's work. Do you see that? I mean, I, I honestly do not know of any other way of looking at the world that honors people who suffer, that the world walks by and doesn't look at the way Jesus does. Right? He's saying, look, this man that everybody says has no purpose in life because he's suffering, now he's going to be used to give God glory. Same for our suffering. Right? And I know... In our unbelief, and we, we have friends who think like this, who say, well, I, I went through this, it was pointless, how could a good God allow this to happen to me? But think about the alternative. If there is no God, you have to manufacture meaning and joy for yourself. And then there's no way to avoid blaming yourself when you suffer. Because you've had to depend on yourself. You have nowhere to go to blame your pain on. And so this sounds an awful lot like a world. We fume in anger at the injustice of our world and walk around blaming everyone's moral failures on ourselves. We blame theirs and their suffering. Well, it's not my fault. 
See, if you try and process the problem of pain without God, atheism mocks suffering. It just leaves you stuck with your own shame, I'm, I'm a failure, and your anger that it should be better. To which you got to ask, why do you think it should be better? <laughs> it's a good question when you're in these conversations. Right? C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, he says, you know, you end up angry at a good God you say you don't believe in. And at some point you have to ask, where did you get the idea that God should be good and that he is good? Only in the Bible. Which means you're moralizing your suffering just like the disciples here in this text. You're blaming God for your suffering. See, Christianity alone says you have one life and God honors your suffering by including sufferers in the work of God, no matter who you are and how much pain you're in. That the works of God may be displayed in you, redeeming the pain. Right? I mean, Jesus says it, this blind man whose whole life has been completely dependent on other people is included in the work of God, in the work of redemption, and showing the goodness, truth, and beauty of who Jesus is. So, put all this together here. God in his mercy sees our suffering, right, if we're in the shoes of the blind man, and he promises to display the visible brightness of God's goodness to you in the midst of the darkness of your suffering, even when you can't see it. I'll say that again, right? God sees your suffering, and he promises to show and highlight his goodness to you in the midst of the darkness of that suffering. Right? The, Jesus says that I'm the light of the world. I'm at work. The darkness of unasked for suffering is no match for Jesus, the light of the world. And so what are those places to get pointed? What are those places in your life where you're like the blind man, trapped in the dark, unable to see God, his goodness, or his purpose for you and for that pain. Can you trust God in the dark? Can you trust God when your conscience is screaming, this must be your fault? And Jesus says it's not. Can you trust God when you're steaming mad at the world, wanting to blame others, when God is trying to show you Jesus? Right? So what do you need to do? Well, you've got to trust God in the darkness, and this is our conclusion here. Look, in verses 3 through 5, this is what happens. What is the blind man called to do at when Jesus comes alongside him? It's simple and seemingly impossible. He's called to trust God in the darkness and to obey Jesus' words. Right? To obey God in the darkness, to go, he's told to go, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Right, well, what happens, right, Jesus continues and he says, uh, verse 6, he spits on the ground and makes mud with saliva and then smears it all over his eyes, seemingly making him more blind, right? He blocks any potential light that could come through and sends him to wash. Why mud? It's so, such a strange way to do a miracle, right? Especially if you could just speak and tell him to see. I mean, there was a common 
uh, superstition back then that there was power in a famous person's spit, which is why the guy wasn't completely weirded out by this. Uh, but I think there's something deeper. How did God originally make humans? From the dust of the earth, watered by the springs coming up from the ground, using mud to give them sight and breath. And so what do you see Jesus doing as your creator? Through the mud, restoring sight to the blind, making him a new creation, giving him the ability to see, to see God in his goodness, to see Jesus. The problem is when Jesus put mud on the man's eyes, it didn't help him see right away. In fact, it would have made him more blind. And so really the blind man is sent on a dark path called to trust God and obey in the darkness, even though functionally it doesn't make sense. Just go wash like he's never washed before. Now, George MacDonald has this great story called The Princess and the Goblin. If you've ever heard of C.S. Lewis's inspiration, and um, Irene is this sweet young princess, and she finds getting lost in this big house because her daddy's the king uh, that she has a fairy godmother living in the attic of her house. She can't always find her, but when she's up there, she knows her fairy grandmother loves her cares for her, teaches for her, and over the years they, they develop this bond. And one day when Irene uh, is a teenager, she's, she's visiting with her fairy grandmother in the attic. Uh, she's given a ring with a thread attached to it. And this thread is connected to a, a ball of twine or a ball of thread that her grandmother says, I will always have with me. Right? Of course, Irene says, okay, I see the ring, but I can't see the thread. I can't see where you're leading me. And the grandmother says to her, well, oh my dear, the, the thread is too fine to see, but you can feel it. So you can't see it, but you can feel it. And she tells Irene, if you're ever in danger, this is what you must do. You must take off the ring, put it under the pillow of your bed, take your forefinger, put it on the thread, and follow the thread wherever it leads you. And Irene says, oh, how delightful. It will lead me to you, grandmother, I know. Therefore, I'll be safe. And the grandmother says, yes, but it will seem a very roundabout way indeed. You must not doubt the thread wherever it takes you. Just remember, you hold one end, I hold the other. Well, a few days later, that's what happens. These goblins show up to try and kidnap the princess, and so she slips on the ring and starts following the thread. And, but rather than it taking her up to safety to her grandmother, it takes her down, actually, into the cave of darkness where the goblins are, into darker places. And it leads her all the way up to this massive pile of stones, which feels like a dead end. She says, now what do I do? She had the thought to try and go backwards, but the thread disappears. The only way she can follow the thread is to keep going forward. Crushed, she collapses in grief, trapped in the darkness, not knowing what to do. We'll come back to her in a moment. I share that because no, it's not that different than the blind man being sent with mud on his eyes, saying, trust me in the darkness, obey. Go down to this pool and wash. Right? Trust and obey, this is what we're called to do, in the darkness of pain so that God's works, so that Jesus might be seen brightly in you, that you would have faith in the dark even though you don't know why God is allowing this to happen. Right? Of course I can. 
I moralize, I blame myself, I blame others, I freak out, I panic. And so that's why I would say this is God's plan for pain, to renew the world, not through, just through our faith, because we can't. He's renewing the world through Jesus' faith in the dark. Because I wonder, in verse 4, when Jesus says, the night is coming, no one can work if he is foreshadowing his death in the darkness on the cross. Because that's what Jesus' work was for, right? To suffer for sufferers, to renew the world by being obedient, even up to and in the darkness of the cross. Right? Samuel Rutherford said, darkness was in Judea when our Lord suffered. Why? Because the candle that lighted the sun and moon was blown out. The Godhead was eclipsed. The world's eye was put out. It was like the sun had said to Jesus, Lord, if there's going to be another world, take me with you. It was, it was this good news for us, bad news for Jesus, that the candle that lighted the world, <laughs> Jesus, right, died in the darkness, losing the face of his father, the one who, who loves him. Right? And what did, how did Jesus get there? He followed God's thread into the darkness of death, even while crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we, when we're in the dark, can know, one, God can't be punishing you because he could punish Jesus. And two, what are we called to do? Trust Jesus' perfect work of faith in the darkness for us. He sets us free, doesn't it? That God could display his work of faith in us in the dark when we don't know what he's up to, but we know he's not mad at us because he can't be. Right? I mean, what are the works that we're called to do during the day? Well, John 6 says the work of God that you must do is believe in the one whom God has sent to trust Jesus. To have faith in the darkness like a blind man. Right? To have our blindness healed. That you can see that God has a plan for suffering to end. And that'll be your story when you become a Christian, right? I once was blind, but now I see. And now as Christians, we're called to imitate that same path. And now I see everything, including my suffering through the lens of Jesus, the light of the world, who overcomes the darkness through his death. So, perhaps you're here, and you're still saying, as we all do, because we wrestle with this question, I cannot for the life of me, see what good purpose God may have for my pain or the pain of those whom I love. This is where I would say you're in the same place as the blind man. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean God in his goodness is not standing right next to you. That he isn't at work in the darkness of your pain and unbelief and sin. I mean... Just imagine the, the blind man saying that. Unless I don't, unless I see, I won't believe. I won't go. No, we're, we're called to take that leap of faith and believe the gospel, this real thing that Jesus did for us, that suffering cannot, I cannot be punished for my sin because all that punishment fell on Jesus. That's what we're being called to do. And what it's going to do is train you to love other sinners and sufferers. Right? Because when you walk into a room, the first question you're not, you're not going to ask is, whose fault is this that this place is a mess? 
Right? That though it's a good question to ask, but not when you're coming alongside a sufferer. It's going to train you to love people the way Jesus loved people, is to see them. So you'll become a person who shines brightly in someone else's darkness because they'll sense Jesus' love in you. Come back to Irene. Right? Irene figured out in the darkness of the cave that the only option was to go forward in the dark, to follow the thread through the pile of rocks. And so what she did with bloody fingers, she finally pulled all these rocks out of the way and she f- discovered on the other side of the rocks was her friend Curdy, who'd been made prisoner by the goblins. And again, she has to have this conversation. Right? Curdy's ready to run back upstairs. Let's go to the light. And Irene has to say to him, look, this sounds crazy. But the thread you can't see goes further into the dark of the cave. But I trusted my grandmother who loves me. And it got me through the dark and I found you. And so no matter what happens, I must follow the thread. And that's what happens. They follow the thread and end up working together to overcome the, the threat. They become a people who love at great cost to themselves. And so what's the point? Christians, we're called to follow our Father's thread who loves us through this dark and painful world, being illuminated by Jesus, the light of the world, who came down into darkness to die in your place. And because we know the end of the story, you can trust that God will work good through this pain, even if you cannot see it yet. What does that set you free to do? One, you're going to demonstrate faith when life stinks can trust Jesus. He's at work. And two, you get to, you're set free to love sinners who suffer without moralizing their pain. So go and learn what that means. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I hope out of, and pray out of all these things we've talked about this morning, uh, that our eyes would be full of Jesus who loves us, who's seen our suffering and came alongside us. And is at work right now, wiping away the tears from our eyes to to make all things sad come untrue. And, And for all those moments where we are wondering what in the world you are up to, I pray your spirit would give us the gift of faith to follow the thread through the darkness so that people might see Jesus in us, his bright shining beauty, truth, and goodness. So we pray all this in his name. Amen.